This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. If you can get into that space where you're actually promising a lifestyle, you're promising something much more meaningful than just a product, I think you can get real loyalty. Like, so for us, when we started making kombucha, our vision was that we were for sure the best tasting kombucha and the highest quality kombucha. But really what we wanted people to buy into was the concept of follow your gut. Welcome to The Real Real, where I take you behind the Instagram reel and into the real lives of entrepreneurs, content creators, and anyone who inspires me and may inspire you too. I'm your host, Natalie Barbu, and let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Real Real Podcast with me, Natalie Barbu. I am in a good mood this morning because this is going to be, I don't want to say it's the last episode, but... It's going to be one of the last episodes where all you're going to be hearing is audio. We're introducing video podcasts. You guys, we are introducing video podcasts. They will be living on my YouTube channel. And I actually saw that YouTube just announced something pretty huge for podcasters. I'm going to look it up before I totally misspeak, but I'm pretty sure they're letting you put now podcasts in like a separate folder so it could still live on my channel because obviously I don't want to start from scratch, but it won't like interrupt my YouTube channel. It says that they're doing an ongoing experiment where the platform allows a handful of creators to make podcasts in the YouTube studio, upload them with just a static image instead of a video and distribute them through the main YouTube app. Okay, so I guess it's not video podcasts. But whatever it is, YouTube is going to start prioritizing podcasts. Whenever social media networks do these experiments, like when Instagram was experimenting with short form video, or even if you think back to when Instagram was experimenting with like IGTV, you could kind of see that it was going to start prioritizing video over photos, even if it at that moment it was not doing that. I'm not saying that YouTube is going to start prioritizing podcasts over YouTube videos, but they're going to be pushing podcasts and that's like 100% sure. So anyways, I'm going to be doing a video podcast. I set up a studio in my office. It's not really like a legit studio, but I got two mics. I have a little nook. It's more like a nook. It's a podcast nook, not a studio because it's not like I don't have all of the, you know, padded walls and whatever a studio entails, but it's a makeshift little podcast nook. And I am so excited. I have already guests lined up in Miami to record in person. I'm going to start doing more in-person interviews. I'm headed to New York in three weeks and I'm going to set up some interviews there as well. And all of them are going to be video. They're going to live on my YouTube channel. I'm actually going to have clips where I can like promote it on social media. It's going to be amazing. And I am so excited. But anyways, if you guys have any guest requests for either New York or Miami or Charlotte, because I am going to Charlotte and Raleigh as well. So North Carolina too, then let me know because I'm really, really, really excited to just have this like new little podcast set up. But anyways, I just wanted to say that this episode is my favorite of the year. I don't know if I've said that before of any podcast this year, but I'm not lying when I say this one is my favorite. Dinah is incredible. She is transitioning out of the CEO role, but was the CEO of HealthAid Kombucha. She was also one of the founders of HealthAid Kombucha, and her entrepreneurial story is just so good. It's different from mine in the sense where 
she wanted to start a business and they were brainstorming a bunch of business ideas, which usually the founders that I have on this podcast, it's like they had this idea because they had this problem and they wanted to solve it. Whereas Dinah was a little different. She wanted to start a business and kind of came up with a bunch of ideas. And I think that's actually really encouraging because sometimes people that have that itch, they have that drive to be entrepreneurs and they want to start a business, but they're like, I have no idea what I would start. And they think unless it hits them like a brick wall, then they can't start it where she actually shows you that that's not true. And she has started such a successful business. Her company was acquired. So they did go through an exit. And her story of just how important community is, what to do when you're just starting out, how to not forget about those little things that actually make a difference, especially in the beginning is just so inspiring. And whether you are a business owner, you want to be a business owner, or you just are interested in hearing like really cool stories, this episode is probably going to be one of your favorites as well. So anyways, I'm very excited to have Dinah on the podcast. And also I am bringing back reviewer of the week because I really want to encourage people to review my podcast. And I just not only want to encourage it, but I want to thank you because it's just, it means so much to me when people do review my podcast. So this one is from Maddie and she said, Natalie is so grounded and real. Each episode is so fun and insightful. Love, love, love. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. And just the fact that you took time to review it means a lot to me as well. Also, if you're listening on Spotify, which I personally listen on Spotify, I don't know about you guys, but ever since Spotify released Spotify Wrapped, I'm like, I'm keeping all that in one place. I want to get my insights for it. So I listen on Spotify, but you can also rate it on Spotify. There's no review. It takes less than a second. You just hit five stars on Spotify. So if you guys could do that, that helps me out a lot. And it lets me know that you guys are enjoying the pod. And I know that you're going to enjoy it more when it's on YouTube and you actually get to see the video. I don't really ever watch video podcasts, but I've kind of started to lately and I can see the appeal. So I'm going to start doing it. And I'm just like, over the moon excited. But anyways, let's get into the episode with Dinah. I'm so excited for you guys to listen to it. Hello, Dinah. Thank you for coming on my podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to record with you. I just, I, I was telling you before we started recording, but having someone that founded such a cool company like HealthAid is something that I'm like really honored to have you on as a guest for. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. Well, we always kick things off on this podcast with setting the record straight. So it's where I say some assumptions or some stereotypes, and then you'll let me know if they're true or false. So if you're ready, we'll just dive into the first one. Sure. First one is that marketing is an art, not a science. Hmm. I'm like right in the middle on that one. I think people think marketing is all like fun, like branding and, you know, messaging and social media, but it's so analytical and it's really numbers driven at the end of the day too. Have you noticed that with your role and with what you do? Yeah. I mean, I think there are performance marketers who would tell you it's all insights and metrics and data that drive and therefore it's quite scientific or logical. But I have seen that the best brands, I think, also rely on real creative talent. And when you want to like do something extremely meaningful in marketing, brands that last years and years and years, I find are ones that are actually like breaking the mold and creating things and saying things in a way that like are totally new and innovative that data couldn't even predict. So I really think that there is a space, an important space for art in marketing 
And I think we'll lose it if we think too much of it as science. Mm -hmm. When you're looking to hire someone at your company that's in the marketing role, do you look mainly for creativity or are you looking for someone that is a little bit more on the analytical side? It totally depends on the role. Mm -hmm. So on the creative team, I'm looking for somebody who is creative. But if I'm looking for like a brand director, I'm looking less for somebody that can create something unique and innovative, but they always need to have a creative capability. Like they have to hold the standard, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it can't just be like a project manager. I find marketing is actually one of the hardest places to hire for because it really requires a breadth of talent. Like I guess in really specialized roles, you wouldn't need much creativity. So for example, in spaces like e-com, you know, a director of e-com or something like that, or, uh, you know, I I wouldn't look for as much creativity there. But other than those super specialized places, I think you have to have an ability to both project manage and be creative. But obviously in the more creative roles, I'd be okay with letting go some of that project management. But then that's, that's always a challenge because Mm -hmm. usually people have one and not the other. Yeah. It sounds like it's a kind of like an art, even in the hiring department, like it's of getting that right balance. It's an art and it's also a like learn as you go. I think there's a lot of sort of initial, I don't want to say turnover because that sounds like a bad word, but like it took me a while to get the right leaders on our marketing team, for example, for health aid, the brand. Yeah. 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 And I mean, hiring, I think is probably one of the hardest parts of being a leader or a founder in, especially in the beginning as you're like building a team, just because it's so important, but you also can't hold on to people just because you feel bad, you know? So it's a hard place to be. Totally. Yeah. Hiring and then terminating and people, people is your, it's your greatest asset. And it's also the most challenging. Mm -hmm. And the next one is that branding and marketing are two different things. Yeah, I don't think that's true. I think what the spirit of the question is, is around performance marketing. So, but I would call branding also a part of marketing. Like marketing to me is the top of the umbrella. It's like the big umbrella that essentially means how you get product off the shelf or how you get people to buy your product. So it is so much more to me than just data and conversions because the brand is such a big reason people buy things. You know, I really believe that people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And they buy into the emotional sort of promise. It's not just the features and benefits, you know? And so um, all of that to me is brand work. Um, Mm -hmm. So again, for long lasting, really like meaningful brands, I think you've got to be focused on both. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today as it should with Earnin. Earnin is an app that is changing the game when it comes to getting paid. Imagine having access to the money you've earned as you work, not just waiting for payday. With Earnin, you can access up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So think about it. The next time you're planning a special night out, you need a last minute gift for a loved one, or you face an unexpected expense, like maybe a trip to the vet. 
Earnin has you covered. For me, it's about having the flexibility to handle those surprise expenses that life throws my way. So whether it's unexpected bills or needing to cover rent when things are tight, Earnin gives me peace of mind knowing that I have access to my hard-earned cash when I need it most. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type Real Real under podcast when you sign up. It really helps the show, so please don't forget that step. Real Real under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Let's talk about styling hair because it is a whole production, especially when you are battling frizz. And take it from me, I live in Miami, Florida. It is about to be summer. I really know frizz, but honestly, I would rather be doing something else like booking a spontaneous vacation to St. Bart's or rewatching the Airs tour for like the third time. You know, the important stuff. But who actually has time for frizz? Introducing Way's new anti-frizz cream. It is like a superhero for your hair. It provides immediate frizz control that lasts up to 72 hours. I actually brought it on a trip with me and my friend borrowed it and she purchased it right then and there because it was that good. So how does this fit into my hair routine? It is the best thing I could have done for my hair. I am all about saving time and the anti-frizz cream does just that. Plus the Sydney inspired North Bondi scent is so amazing. You can thank bergamot, Italian lemon violet and more. And as someone who is always concerned about heat damage because I definitely use a lot of heat on my hair, this anti-frizz cream provides heat protection, which is such a big relief. And my hair feels so much lighter and looks smoother after using it. Get busy being frizz free with Way's new anti-frizz cream. It's not just about taming frizz. It also provides heat protection up to 400 50 degrees, reduces and repairs split ends, quenches dry hair with intense hydration, and according to a consumer perception study, 90% of participants agreed that their hair looked less frizzy after using it. I can definitely contest that. And while you're at it, check out Way's other bestsellers like the leave-in conditioner, which I also use, detox shampoo, fragrances, hair oils, and hair gloss. They're all essential for achieving that salon-worthy look at home. So you can frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter promo code RealReal for 15% off any product. That's T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code RealReal. When you say branding about why and, you know, your mission and that's what people buy into, how early on are you thinking about that branding? Are you thinking about it when you start the company or is it something that kind of develops over time? Yeah, I think it develops over time. I think it evolves is, is the way I put it. It evolves over time. But I think you always have to be thinking about why someone's buying your product. And you've got to be thinking past, you know, it's sort of direct benefits. So... I mean, people always use this example, but we all know that people will stand in line for an Apple product, you know, before they even know what it is. <laughs> yeah. And it's, its features and benefits might even be inferior to another product that's readily available, half the price, you know, and people are kind of like dumbfounded by it, but I'm, I'm not. I mean, I, I think it makes complete sense why people will do that. And it's because they are bought into what Apple has sold them from a much deeper space than just the product. So if you can get into that space where you're actually promising a lifestyle, you're promising something much more meaningful than just a product, 
I think you can get real loyalty. And that's obviously what all marketers want. So, you know, in the beginning, I think it's important to have your site set on something like that. Like, so for us, when we started making kombucha, our vision was that we were for sure the best tasting kombucha and the highest quality kombucha. But really what we wanted people to buy into was the concept of follow your gut, which to us, that's our tagline. That was like our most sort of empower, like it's an empowering message that has sort of two sides of the coin. One being gut health, follow your gut, right? Like we want people to become knowledgeable about gut health, to discover gut health. But then the other side of it is that sort of like follow your intuition. You know what's best. You've got a good head on your shoulders. And so our dream was always like when people see a health aid, that they wouldn't just think, oh, this is really tasty kombucha. They would think, I'm going to be my authentic self today. You know, that was always our vision anyway, and or our mission, I guess you could say. But as we grew, you know, we got better and better at like articulating that mission. And once you articulate it better and understand it better, you can start to put like actions and like objectives and tasks to like actually hit that. So for sure it will evolve. But I think those that have the why really understood, or let me put it this way, the brands that are awesome out there that you just like really love, they're not just talking to you about their product benefits and features. They have a bigger mission in mind underneath. And I believe that's a reason they're super awesome. Mm-hmm. And I mean, with something like Health Aid, though, your tagline is follow your gut. That's your mission. But when people are searching for it, they see it at the grocery store. You know, they're seeing it amongst other beverages. How do you get people in those moments to know that that's your mission? Is it because you do a lot of stuff out of the grocery store and you're hoping that when people go in, they already recognize it? That, yeah, for sure. But you've got to do your best with everything you got, right? And you're absolutely right that most people are probably discovering health aid in the store, like when they're doing their regular shopping. And so it's so hard to do it on a package. You know, it's so hard to, but at the same time, you've got to try because that's where they're interacting with you. And so everything about that package and experience, as much as you can control, you've got to have essentially saying what you want it to say. And so if you only think about your packaging from a benefits feature standpoint, you know, that's what consumers are going to pick up. But what we tried to do with HealthAid was to communicate this sort of follow your gut First of all, the words follow your gut are all over our label, but even sub words, you know, that might drive to follow your gut, things like bubbly, things like optimistic. You'll see words like this all over our package that essentially to us ladder up to this follow your gut mentality. That's Mm -hmm. the one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is the gut health side. And you'll also see that we're talking about gut health on the package a bunch. So, you know, that's the way we do it, but it even goes more subliminal and deeper than that. Like, you know, the font choice you pick, what's it saying? You know, is it hard and cold? Is it warm? Is it feminine? Is it masculine? What are you conveying with your font? Every single decision you make and package, especially for food and beverage, because you're sitting on a shelf amongst a hundred competitors. I guess that's in beauty too. So I should say anything on the shelf, you know, you got to think about everything, how it feels when they pick it up. So, you know, from a marketing standpoint, you've got to be very focused whatever you feed lives, whatever you don't dies, right? So if you're not thinking about that stuff, you're definitely not communicating what you think you are. So for us, we identified, yeah, follow your gut is paramount. And then we want to make sure we're aligned with our brand personality. And then we had certain things we knew we wanted to hit. Like we wanted people to know we were a premium product, that we were good for them. Anyway, there was a list of things. 
And every single thing we created, whether it was a simple sell sheet or a postcard or even the t-shirts we created for our employees to wear, they had to tick off each of those. You know, it had to be all those things. It had to match not just the tone of our brand, you know, our brand personality, but also the things that we wanted it to display. So if we wanted to be a premium brand, we couldn't be, you know, throwing a crappy tablecloth on the demo table, you know, it, despite the fact that, you know, the demo companies have like a standard tablecloth and it's the cheapest one. Like, you know, those little things in my mind matter. Obviously Mm -hmm. you have to at some point make concessions, you know, as you scale. But like you said in the beginning, that's your sort of chance to really get your first followers. Those followers then tell their friends. So that beginning time is so, so, so important. I remember Mm -hmm. in our farmer's market days, like we were just in the farmer's markets, but like I took an hour to set up every table because I was so, I wanted so badly to communicate that we were premium. We were good for you. We were artisanal. Like there were all these words I had down and, you know, I would hand pick the flowers. I mean, crazy stuff. People would say, how do you have time for that? Well, I just woke up at four in the morning to do it because, you know, that was important. But looking back, I'm like, wow, I think that was actually really important, you know, in the end, because it communicated to our first customers that we were those things. And I'm not even talking about the product at this point. I'm talking about tablecloths, you know? Yeah. And then, of course, everything else you do, like you said, you're doing so much more than just the shelf showing up on the shelf. Yeah. And also, I mean, that kind of reminds me of that advice of like doing things that don't scale in the beginning, especially Mm -hmm. if you're just starting out. I think it's important to do that because I think all the time you're thinking, okay, growth, growth, growth. How do I get this to 100x people? How are we growing 10, 3x year over year or whatever you want your metrics to look like? But in the beginning, you have such a benefit being small and you have such a benefit actually talking to your customers. And so it's so important to think about those small little details or those small things or at the farmer's market, actually speaking to the people that come up to your table, not just thinking about how are you going to reach the globe, but thinking about how am I going to reach these people, these 20 people that are at this tiny farmer's market here. And I mean, you clearly have like a great business to show for it. So I think that all of those details definitely helped. I totally agree. You know, the farmer's markets are a funny thing because they were such a pain. I mean, you know, such a physical requirement of effort, right? Every Sunday, every Saturday, every Tuesday, we'd get up, we'd pack the coolers, we'd head out there, we'd set up the table, we'd talk to consumers for like eight straight hours. I mean, it was like a trade show three times a week. And it was so much work, you know, especially when we had another job at the same time, because we were, you know, starting this company, had not yet finished our previous job. So you know, yeah, it was super tiring. And I remember being very excited when we walked away from the farmer's market because it felt like we had grown past it. But looking back again, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I'm like so grateful that we went that route for the reasons you just described. It allowed us this very rare opportunity to have super meaningful face-to-face conversations with consumers. And I know we kind of do that with things like marketing insights where we're sending people a survey and we're getting, but that's not the same thing. Like when you get one-on-one time with somebody and sometimes they would stay for like 20 minutes, week over week, you'd see what flavors they like, what they don't, what messages they like, they don't. I just think it taught us so much about how to direct our brand and messaging that we took with us, you know, throughout the following years to be successful. And that's how we got our first customers, you know? Yeah. And they're probably the loyal ones that were sharing about yeah. you bringing their friends the next weeks, coming yeah, back week yeah. after week. Exactly. Yeah. And then and then the friends, they maybe bought it once, but then they, then they start to see it in the stores and then it grows, right? And you start to like get to this tipping point of 
I think most consumers of health aid today probably never saw us in the farmer's market, but it all started with that kind of, you have to ignite it. I think it's really hard to ignite a brand. Obviously, if you have millions and millions of dollars, it might be easier, but usually people don't. So how do you ignite it at that beginning stage? Well, the farmer's market worked really well for that for us. But again, Mm -hmm. we were thinking about all, we weren't just showing up, you know, we were thinking about all the things. Right, right. And I mean, I think... That's similar. So I'm I'm the founder of a startup. It's a tech startup, so very different than the food and beverage space. But we're talking with our users one on one. We're doing these like creator calls where we're talking to them and actually giving them advice and providing value all for free. And at first I had thought like, okay, I have so many other things I need to do. Spending 30 minutes with one person is kind of a lot when mm-hmm. there's, you know, so many people that we're trying to reach. But those have been the most valuable. Those people have come back. They've told their friends about us. They've posted us on social media. They've given us so many ideas that have really shaped what we're doing. It's the most valuable thing, even though it's time consuming and it's not scalable. You know, I can't, if I only have a certain amount of hours in a day, like 30 minute calls take up a big chunk of that. But it's by far the most valuable thing that I've done and that we've seen like as a company. So I I think it's a very similar thing as like the farmer's market. but in the tech space a little bit different. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's so great that you're committing to that. And, you know, even if you don't do farmer's markets as founders or CEOs, you can establish any kind of discipline talking to consumers. You can show up to stores. I mean, the Levi CEO for like, I mean, one of the things he was famous for, for a good 15 years, I think every week he sat down with a customer that bought a pair of Levi's and was just asking him questions. How do you like your jeans? Do you love them? Are they your favorite pair? What do you wish was different? And I mean, I I guess on one hand, you could say that was a waste of time. There was probably a more efficient way to do it. But I really appreciated that he prioritized that because it means he's never losing sight of who this product is for. Mm -hmm. Seeing them is different than sending a survey and getting a spreadsheet of what the answers were. It's totally Uh different. And it's also different if somebody else does it. Like I really encourage the leaders to do it. Like, I know it's easier to hand it over to somebody else and say, go get me this information and report back. But it it is so different when you see it. So like even bigger scaled brands, you know, when you do events, live events, like you should go sometimes. You should go Mm -hmm. and be behind the table and sell a few bottles and see what is happening with that interaction because there's so much you'll garner from it. I think that's a mistake brands get as they get bigger too, as they kind Mm -hmm. of lose sight of it. Which kind of brings me to the next one, which is that the CEO is the most stressful job you can have or the role of CEO is the most stressful job you can have. Yeah. I mean, if you want to... Okay. So I think the most stressful job you can have is, you know, parenting a sick kid or something like that. But let's take parenting out of it. It's certainly one of the most. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, stress is a funny thing. It's sort of like there are stressors and then there's how we respond to it. It's like how stressed out we get to the stressors. So some people can be really freaking stressed out with few stressors. And there's a lot we can do to help us manage our stress better. But if we were to assume we're managing our stress pretty well, yeah, the CEO job is crazy because you've got first, everybody's relying on you. So there's a lot of pressure coming from the bottom. And I would say also you feel that pressure because you feel responsible for everyone too, you know, from the team. So there's just, you know, within just the 
the organism of the actual team itself. You feel a lot of responsibility and a lot of pressure every day. At least I did. And then you also feel the pressure from the stakeholders outside of the company, but maybe the owners or the investors, somebody who's got some kind of stake. That's just a lot of everyday pressure. Even if nobody's bothering you or complaining, (laughs) you feel that every day. And then you've got the challenges of like every aspect of your business. I mean, business is basically, and you'll, you'll attest to this, like you create a product or a service, right? And you're setting it out to the world and you, you, for sure, it has to be extraordinary in some way. We all know that. But what business actually is day to day is solving problems mm-hmm. and overcoming challenges. It's nonstop problem solving. And each department underneath or each, you know, vertical of work underneath you or underneath the company is going to have challenges and problems as it grows. And as CEO, while you might not be in the weeds of every single problem, the hardest problems come to you. And I think the faster you grow, the harder the problems, dot, dot, dot. So you don't get the easy stuff. The easy stuff gets delegated well, uh, gets solved well before it hits your plate. And so what you're getting are the real hairy challenges that seem to have no solution that's good, <laughs> you know? And that's right. challenging, you know? You do that hour after hour after hour, and it's a lot for your brain. Not to mention mm-hmm. the fact that you have to switch from finance brain to creative brain to now you got to sell the product brain to, you know, are you doing enough for your people? And it's a nonstop. Like I used to say to Justin, my husband, he and I started the company together alongside uh, my best friend, Vanessa. But I used to say to Justin, as I lay my head down on my pillow at night, I'd be like, I have never used my intellect <laughs> this much in my life. Like, so in some ways I was grateful because I felt like every cobweb of my brain was washed out. Like there was... N- I was not using 10% of my brain. I can tell you that. Yeah. I was using much more than that. I felt I felt like, whoa, I mean, come on. You know, I was pushing myself today on every level. So I know CEOs are probably nodding their head. They're like, yep, yep. You know, at a certain point, you know, you're, you do start to get taxed with all of that work, essentially, and challenge and nonstop transformations. Oh, there's so much. And then as you grow, you know, as the company grows, it demands something not just more of you, but different of you each year. And so as a CEO, you got to transform, you know, mm-hmm. if you're going to be that company CEO every year, you got to step up to the plate, look in the mirror, figure out the things that the company needs from you differently, and you got to deliver it, you know? So there's yeah. also that personal transformation. I mean, it's nuts. I mean, I, yeah. I have to say it, it was one of the most fulfilling roles of my life. Like I, I'm so proud of having been able to do that and do that successfully. But I'm also at the same time, very happy to take a break from it. I I don't know uh, if you're aware of this, but in March, I'm stepping away. I'm looking forward to that break just for my own like health and, you know, brain. (laughs) A hundred percent. Yeah. Everything you were saying about compartmentalizing, like first your finance brain, then your creative brain, then sales. I completely relate to because I feel like I always tell my team, like, I feel like I'm always in different modes. And it's every day, every hour, it's like something else. Like I know some people are like, well, you can time batch, you can do marketing one day and then something else the other day. I'm like, you really can't like it's what gets thrown at you. And that's 
what you have to focus on that day or that hour. And so you're always switching. And so I totally relate to everything you were saying there. I mean, with that being said, did, is that something you always wanted to do? Like, but when you first started HealthAid with your team and with your co-founders, did you think that you were going to be the CEO and that was something that you wanted to be? Or did you kind of fall into that role? Like, how was that decided? When we first started, I, I didn't have my eyes set on CEO, like that title. But all three of us had our own motivations for starting a business. The funny thing is we didn't even know it was going to be kombucha to start, right? Like the reason we started a business was really just because we want, we, the three of us were all feeling unfulfilled with our current career situations. And we had this itch inside of us that felt like we could build something of our own that was going to be better. But we each had our different reasons for what we wanted to accomplish with that. And then we landed on kombucha. So it wasn't like we had this great idea and it kept knocking on the door saying, hey, you better sell this kombucha. It's really good. It wasn't like that at all. It was more the business, like entrepreneurship was what knocked on the door. And then we were like, so what are we going to sell? What are we going to build? And then we came to kombucha. So, So that was sort of like just one thing that was interesting and I think is common in a lot of entrepreneurs. But the other thing I wanted to say, so my drive to start the business was to build a team build a team I could be really proud of and build a company culture that people wanted to like work for. I I had this vision and dream because I'd come from a super corporate place where like you couldn't even have nail polish on. Like it, it bothered me the rules because it felt like it was putting everybody into a box and not cultivating authenticity or like, so I wanted to do it differently. I wanted to build one that had like, like extreme integrity and like real sort of support for and empowerment of like the individual authentic self. And people would be like working hard because they wanted to work hard because they liked working there. So for me, that was a huge motivating factor. And so when the three of us got together, it was just sort of clear that I had that leader. I had that leader like drive. I wanted to build a team, lead it, build the strategy. I did not want to do things like manufacturing operations. My gift is definitely not in um, completing tasks. I'm very good at starting and initiating things, you know? So we kind of, we kind of evolved and got there, but pretty quickly. And it was not even a fight. Like both of them were like, no, 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 we don't want to do CEO. You do it. And Vanessa, you know, naturally fell into the sales side and Justin naturally into the ops side. And that's how we sort of began our business. And as CEO, my heaviest sort of hand was in marketing. So I would say in the beginning, before we had a marketing team, I was, I was that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's so important for all of you to agree and all have very separate roles. Because if two people wanted to do the same thing or had overlapping roles, that's where a lot of co-founder drama can begin or things can get a little bit messy in that sense. So I think that that's really great. And then when you did want to start, you know, healthy, you wanted to start kombucha. How did you get into kombucha if at first you didn't necessarily have that idea? Because usually I feel like Oh, you'll hear about entrepreneurs that are like, I just had this need and I just needed to start it. And that's how, you know, I tried all the kombuchas and they all were horrible. So that's why I wanted to start it. With Mm -hmm. you, it was more of like, I want to start a business. What is this business going to be? And how did that happen? Like, what were your other ideas? Did you guys have like pros and cons lists or what was that process Mm -hmm. like? Yeah. So I had learned how to make kombucha back in grad school. I went to graduate school for nutrition. And I, when I was there, I fell in love with fermented foods and learned how to make kombucha. And so like that was a good 10 years before we started Health Aid though. So 
just so you know, that's where the recipe came from. It was from my nutrition days. But when we decided that we wanted to start a business together, what we said was we would start an entrepreneur club and that we would, you know, join forces every Saturday. And we would, during the week, take a notebook with us and any problems that weren't solved in the week for us, you know, under the sun, it didn't matter what category of, you know, life they fell into, but any kind of annoying problems that there weren't a solution for, we were supposed to write down and then bring to the table. And so when we would meet at this entrepreneur club, we would be like, okay, my like high knee boots kept falling down my leg, you know, they, they like, they wouldn't stay up. That was like, you know, or another was like, I drove around for 15 minutes and couldn't find parking. This is back in 2012. <laughs> um, so now there are a bunch of parking apps and stuff, but this was before all of those existed. I was getting married at the time. So it was like, uh, this registry thing is really, you know, wonky. And I had a bunch of qualms with that. So we, we listed all these things out. And as a group, we would select which ones we were sort of energetic about and felt like we all three were like, oh yeah, I, I could get into that. And then we would have homework the following week to kind of do a little research, you know, what kind of competition is out there, what solutions are out there, how difficult would it be? And then we'd report back. So we did this like probably for about four or five sessions until we landed on one that we were super stoked about. And it was actually to regrow hair. A number of reasons that we were stoked about it, but one of which was that my husband already started to have thinning hair and he was like, <laughs> he's like, this is a serious, you know, serious thing that like I would pretty much do anything to solve. And I'm, I, I know that, you know, many men and women would agree. So at the time there weren't that many solutions that were natural. There was like Rogaine and stuff and prescription drugs, but not anything that was natural and not anything that seemed to work that well. So we started researching what would regrow hair, sort of thinking about it from a natural lens. And we came up that kombucha, the SCOBY for kombucha is used all over the world as a mask on the head. And there were like all these anecdotal videos and stuff online of people showing how to use it. And that like, if they did it once a week, their hair grew back or like it got stronger or whatever. And because I knew how to make kombucha, I was like, this is something we could do. You know, we could create a mask you know, sell it in the farmer's markets and use the scobies, you know, kind of brine them up or mash them up or whatever, mix it with some other, you know, hair strengthening things like avocado or coconut or whatever, put it in a mask, put it on the head, let's do it. And so we started um, creating a product out of kombucha scobies. Now to make kombucha scobies, you have to make a bunch of kombucha. So we were making my really good kombucha like crazy so that we could cultivate these scobies. And I didn't want to throw out the liquid. So I would just bottle it up and put it in my apartment and like give it to friends as they came over. But basically after a couple of weeks of doing that, maybe three, four weeks of doing that, we realized that creating a product with like the SCOBY culture smelled really bad. Like we were far from a product that was going to be sellable. Mm -hmm. I had all this kombucha, you know, and it was really <laughs> good. We had like 60 cases of it in my apartment. It was taking over and we were so antsy to get started. So the three of us were like, okay, let's just start selling this kombucha. It's really good. It's the best we've had. We want to start a business. Let's get our feet wet. We'll learn a lot. And then whatever, you know, lessons we have to take with us and whatever money we make from kombucha in the farmer's markets, we'll take with us and like really start this hair loss thing a little more seriously. So that's how we started selling kombucha. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. That's, I love that story. I yes. think it's so unusual for a lot of entrepreneur stories that you hear, like you hear a lot about people that kind of are trying to solve a problem that they have, 
But I think that that's awesome. And when you were doing the kombucha and you're like, okay, let's just sell it, whatever. Did you ever think that that was going to be the business that grows or you thought that, okay, we'll focus on the hair loss afterwards or the hair thing afterwards, or this will be something else? Or were you excited about kombucha? Like, did you guys do that intense homework and research like you did for the other topics? Or was kind of like, okay, let's just see what happens. I mean, it was a little bit, let's see what happens, but we weren't going to like let fate decide. So once we decided that we were going to sell kombucha in the farmer's markets, yes, I thought it was just going to be a summer project. So we started in March. I thought by the end of the summer, we will have maybe made enough cash to like buy a laser hair counter machine and again, get back to the hair loss business, which we saw so much potential with. But that doesn't mean we just showed up to the farmer's markets. Like once we were like, okay, we're doing kombucha. We're like, we're doing kombucha the best, like, you know, we're putting our best foot forward. We, we weren't the kind of people who were going to just like phone it in and just sort of, you know, see if it would go anywhere. So no, you're right. I mean, at first I didn't think it was going to be in every fridge in America or anything like that, but it only took about three or four farmer's markets for us to realize that we had hit on something. I mean, there were like lines down the street at the farmer's market for our booth. It was always busy. I mean, from the minute we opened to the minute it closed, even after we had closed down the booth, we were selling kombucha. We would sell out all the time. We couldn't make enough kombucha. I mean, it was like we had all these indicators to tell us that we had hit on something. Consumers loved it. And yeah, so we switched gears pretty quickly. Like once we were like a month in, we're like, screw the hair loss, you know? Mm -hmm. So it only took about a month. But once we had those indicators, it was like, oh, we want this in every fridge in America. And so quite quickly, we had a big dream. And did you ever feel like you three weren't necessarily qualified because, you know, (laughs) you hadn't made kombucha in 10 years? And I'm saying this as someone that has like imposter syndrome that's like, wait, I'm doing a tech company, you know, like I feel that way all the time with just having that imposter syndrome of, okay, am I the right person for this? Am I qualified? I quickly get that confidence back. But it's I mean, there's definitely moments where I've felt that way. So I was wondering if you guys have ever felt that way since you were looking at a whole broad range of topics and different businesses. How did you know that you guys were the right ones to do it, I guess? First, let me just say that I'm so like, thank you for bringing imposter syndrome up feeling like a fraud is another way to think about it. Feeling like people are going to find out you're not qualified. These are all very common things that I think all entrepreneurs experience, mm-hmm. perhaps even all leaders. I know in you know I'm in organizations with other founders and there were times I was nervous to bring up feeling like an imposter to them uh, because I didn't want anyone to think I was. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. Even saying that, I'm like, uh, I'm like walking carefully with what I say. No, I know. And when I brought it up, it was like, oh, yeah, we've all felt that. We feel that all the time. I'm feeling that right now. You know, so I realized like, okay, no, this is a thing that everyone experiences. So to all those listening that have felt that, including you, you know, me too, it is so normal. And, you know, it, it does pass and you have to just sort of like, just like get through it because, you know, you have to remind yourself of all the things that you are. But back to the original question, yes, I felt unqualified. I mean, we had never started a business before. I had been making kombucha, by the way, that whole time I had been making it, but just for myself, like I wasn't selling it, even though I knew how to make kombucha. That's about all I knew. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we had never started a business before. We didn't have any money. We had no assets to leverage. 
to raise money, which, you know, you need money for business. So that was a challenge. And, you know, I didn't have any like even groups around me that were there to show us the way or anything like that. So yeah, for all intents and purposes, we were like, we had no business being in business. And yet, you know, it still worked. So that lesson taught me, you know, there's a lesson there, right? It obviously taught me that you don't need any of that, you know, but even still, it's not like I only felt like an imposter in the beginning. And then, you know, I constantly felt like an imposter. And the funny thing is, is even after selling the company to a private equity group, which happened in 2021, we still found ourselves in places of imposterhood. So I think it's, it's a never ending thing. And it's, it's very normal. It's very normal. And it's unfortunate because what I always go back to after those periods of feeling like an imposter is that everything you need to be good at what you do is on the inside Mm -hmm. and you already have it. Yeah. What are some of those qualities that, that you would say makes a good CEO, makes a good leader, makes a good business owner? Oh man. I think first I will say that a business, I have really seen this as I've observed many of my friends see success and see failure. There are a trillion, maybe even infinite ways to do it right. So that's part of the complexity of running a business is you're painting the canvas, you're, you're making the decisions and there is no guidebook. And anybody who tells you there's a guidebook is wrong because I've seen successful on-shelf businesses do it with, you know, an in-house sale team or an out-of-house sales team. I've seen them do it, you know, focusing only on data marketing. I've seen them work only with, with brand marketing. Like, I mean, there's just so many ways. So I don't think um, it's those decisions. I think some important things you have to be as a CEO are, you know, especially in the beginning, super gritty and tenacious. Like you've got to basically work harder than most and like, you know, just sort of never give up that whatever that word is. I mean, I think it's tenacity. I think it's relentless, whatever it's grit. It's like, you just will not stop. Mm -hmm. That is a really important thing. And then I think for sure being able to make decisions like decisiveness is important, but like so many things tie into decisiveness, like self-confidence, I think ties into decisiveness. You've got to be confident in yourself to make a decision, but people still have many different styles in decision-making and many work, right? You can be a more of a consensus driven decision-maker and that's okay. That can work. You can be a more dictator-y type and that can work too. Both have pros and cons probably. So it's not so much that you have to be a specific type of decider, but just that you do decide. You don't get But beyond that, oh, I, I think I will also say that a really important trait, maybe maybe even the only trait that really, really matters. I don't see how you could be a CEO and start a business or lead a business without this trait is, you know, the drive to win, which maybe falls into that grit one. But it's more than just willingness, you know, to never get off the horse or maybe willingness to always get back on the horse when you fall. It's more like you are going, you are never going, you know, you're just going to win. Mm-hmm. That that drive to win, I think is really important. And tied into that is like that you're able to work independently without structure, without a map, you know, like mm-hmm. sort of like a trailblazer. That would to me be like the most important. But other than that, like if you're a super big people person and your gift is with people, well, then you can win through people. If you're a super operations type person that's like system oriented and like you love creating, you know, systems that then things can plug into and work really efficiently, well, you can win through that. I think there's so many ways to lead as a CEO. It's not like cookie cutter. It's not one way. 
But I think yeah. you always have to want to win and be willing to put in the work. A hundred percent. And I like that you said that there's infinite ways to do it right. Like there's not one, okay, you need to do this and then you will be successful. There's so many different styles of leaders. There's so many different backgrounds. There's so many different types of even like starting a company, like you didn't have necessarily the problem at first. You were the one that just wanted to start a business and you found this business and you're doing it really well. And other people, it happens to them after they've been struggling with something for so long and then they have the idea. Like there's not one right way to start a business, lead a business, run it. So I think that that's so important because people will listen to a million podcasts. They'll read every book trying to kind of figure out the what right path and what to do. And you're just not going to find those answers there. You'll get inspiration, but you're not going to find those answers. You just have to, like you said, have that drive. Follow your gut. You got to follow your gut. Yeah. That's- <laughs> All ties <laughs> back. Amazing. <laughs> we did this yeah, on purpose. We did. <laughs> no, but it's so true. Like, I mean, that's another reason for the tagline, by the way. It wasn't just for our product. It's like a business mantra. It's kind of like who you are inside is somehow extraordinary. It is. I believe that. Every single individual person probably on this planet has something super special about them. And knowing what your strengths are, knowing what's special about you is sort of the key. And then you just figure out, well, how do I win with that? Mm -hmm. You know, how do I win with that? And, you know, obviously you have to want to lead as CEO. You have to, you have to want to lead. It doesn't mean you have to want to be the face of the company though. You know, there are plenty of CEOs who are sort of backstage CEOs, but you have to want to be able to lead, be independent, build something, you know, and want to win. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I think you can be a good CEO with all types of personalities underneath that. Totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, this was incredible. I actually, this is my favorite episode of the year so far. So (laughs) I got so many nuggets from it. If you couldn't tell, I was asking questions, selfish questions that I wanted to know. (laughs) So this was really, really, really great. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Where can they find you and where can they also find HealthAid? Well, thank you for having me too, Natalie. You can find HealthAid 24 hours a day at healthaid.com. And that's A-D-E, like lemonade. And then, of course, on all of our social channels at HealthAid. Me personally, you can follow me on Instagram at Dinah Trout. So, you know, not too hard to find. And I'd be happy to chat. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Dinah. This was incredible. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Real Real. I hope that you enjoyed and don't forget to rate, review, follow, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow me personally on Instagram at Natalie Barbu and the podcast at The Real Real Podcast. I'll see you next Monday. Hey there, my name is Renee Rena, and I am the mom friend you have always wanted. I am also the host of the Mom Room Podcast. We publish two episodes per week, a co-hosted episode on Tuesdays and a solo episode on Thursdays. Popular topics include pooping and having sex after giving birth. I have a solo episode where I talk about not sharing a bed with my husband and why that's okay. I hope you'll tune in to these conversations every week. Join us on Instagram at the Mom Room Podcast and start to feel a little less alone in this crazy thing called motherhood. Hey, my name is Lovan Roomf and I've been working my ass off as a celebrity stylist by day and a podcast host by night. 
At the Low Life Podcast, it's all about keeping it real. We're talking fashion, beauty, to religion, sex, drugs, mental health. I mean, there's no topic off limits here, and vulnerability is mandatory. You can find my podcast, The Low Life, that's L-O, no W, everywhere and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. New episodes are out every Thursday. We'll see you then.